0: Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. We've got lots to drill deep into on this week's podcast, including our guest, Kyle Schneeweiss of High Street Consulting. There's a lot of money out there to do infrastructure, and Kyle's firm works with governments figuring out how to spend all that loot. He's going to be here in a few minutes. We call the podcast Drilling Deep because we always start by talking about oil, which is the lifeblood of the trucking industry. And since oil needs to be drilled, that's how we got our name. But oil needs to be refined also to turn it into diesel and other things like gasoline. Oil, crude oil at least, in some ways is a worthless product. Outside of burning it to create electricity, which is a very inefficient use of it, you need a refinery to turn it into something. And that brings me to some numbers I was looking at the other day. Each week, the Energy Information Agency puts out its weekly statistical report. It's closely watched. Everybody criticizes it. But you know what? That's what we got to deal with. That's that. It's out there, and it's the best we've got. In those numbers is a figure for the country's refining capacity. Obviously, this number doesn't change much from week to week. This figure is not the amount of oil refined in the nation's refinery. That number is in there separately. That does fluctuate. What I'm talking about is the IEA's estimate of the amount of refining capacity that can be used. And I noticed that it's way down from a year ago, or really almost two years ago, The latest figure is 18.13 million barrels per day. It opened up 2020 at 18.8 million barrels per day, and then it got up to 18.9 million barrels per day just as the pandemic began. So now it's down about 800,000 barrels per day from its peak. If you're wondering how it can climb like a small amount without a new refinery being built, changes are made. There's internal expansion within a refinery. Some engineering might go on and you can get a higher refining capacity. So how did it happen that we dropped from 18.9 down to about 18.1 at present? With the collapse in worldwide and U.S. demand last year because of the pandemic, it was inevitable that some refining capacity around the world was going to have to go. But things started getting cut even before then. After a big fire in 2019, a refinery in Philadelphia that was the biggest on the East Coast shut down some of the other refineries that the EIA took out of its base number for refining were small refineries. Smaller ones often have a tough time making it unless they found a particular niche that allows them to survive. But there were also a couple of refineries on the Gulf Coast that were in there that also closed. And that Gulf Coast sector has tended to be the most efficient in the world with access to U.S. crudes as well as imported material. So those were kind of re- uh, surprising closures. So the EIA at the start of this year ratcheted down its base number for the amount of refining capacity in the US. One good thing happened this year from the perspective of users of fuels like diesel, that number did not get worse. There is a Phillips 66 refinery in Louisiana known as the Alliance Refinery that is on the block. It may get shut permanently if no buyer steps forward, but otherwise there are no refineries that were closed this year. And we can't forget what else has stepped up to replace some of that lost refining capacity I'm talking here about a whole lot of operations to make renewable diesel, mostly in kind of a small section, a small segment of a closed refinery. For example, the Rodeo plant near San Francisco that was operated by Phillips 66 was shut and is being repurposed to make nothing but renewable diesel. Just recently, a refinery in Newfoundland that's located in the lyrical city name of Come By Chance. It had been closed for several years. It got sold to its fifth owner in the last 40 years, and now it's going to make renewable diesel. If the refinery closures were impacting the price of the products that come out of it, you know, you'd know you see that in the spread between the price of crude and the price of diesel, but that is not showing up, and maybe it won't. In 2019, the average spread between the price of Brent crude and the price of ultra-low sulfur diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange was about 41.2 cents per gallon. This year, with all those refinery closures in place, that spread so far is 37.4 cents per gallon. So it actually weakened, it did not strengthen. And ultimately that makes a lot of sense. Markets will balance over time. If refinery closures got too excessive and margins shot up, there wouldn't be any further refinery closures. And there might even be some capacity brought back online. In the case of diesel, you have big government incentives that lead to the creation of renewable diesel refineries. This is not to downplay refinery closures, for end users like truck drivers, how much refining capacity is out there, that's going to remain energy issue, maybe number one, I'll say 1A. Still, it's always going to be, most importantly, the level of crude production. But the events of the past two years without a spike in the margin between diesel and crude, make it can look like that capacity can balance with the needs of end users. Time to pivot here on Drilling Deep, as we always do. You know, there's a lot of money that is going to be spent on infrastructure in the coming years as a result of the infrastructure bill that was approved by Congress and signed by President Biden. And I think the key goal needs to be to ensure that it gets spent well. Whether you were in favor of the bill or opposed opposed to the bill, the reality is that the money is there, it is going to be spent, and there are enormous decisions to be made by the public sector in figuring out how how to allocate it. You know, not long ago, Kyle Schneeweiss would have been on the side of the divide figuring out how to spend it. He was CEO at the Nebraska Department of Transportation. But just about a year ago, Kyle moved over to the private sector, still with the CEO title, but this time at High Street Consulting Group. And in that new job, he consults with governments and others on a wide variety of transportation issues, including things like, how do we spend all this money? And Kyle is here today on Drilling Deep to talk about how that money is going to make it out into the infrastructure world. So Kyle, thanks for joining us.
1: John, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: So first of all, do you want to give a little description of High Street? I think you can probably do it better than me.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. We're, we're a small uh, transportation policy firm, about 30 folks. I'd like to say we're small, but mighty. Uh, we're spread out all over the country. We, we were a virtual firm you know, before everybody started working from home and, and like many folks are. And uh, and so we've gotten quite good at it since we were founded that way in 2008. But we yeah we advise you said it well. We advise uh, state DOTs, federal highway, federal other federal agencies, cities, counties on everything transportation. Uh, A lot of it is around what kind of projects should we build? How do we get the best benefit for these projects uh, that we're trying to decide between? And so we can give the best uh, economic impacts and travel benefits to the people who use the roads and other modes of transportation.
0: So I'm sure you're very happy at High Street Consulting, but do you wish a little bit that you were on the Nebraska side of things and suddenly was going to have all this money to spend, things that you probably just fantasized about for years and now maybe they'd be reality?
1: Well, I, I will say uh, my heart has always been in the in the public sector. I spent a lot of time working in the Kansas DOT as a young out-of-school graduate uh, but I've been kind of in and out of the private sector and, and the public sector back and forth. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's an exciting time in transportation, you know, states are investing in, in infrastructure. Now the federal government has stepped up and and will up their investments. So it's a great time to be in transportation. So what is the process going to be on the state
0: level or the federal level to determine how the money gets out like per state per project? Uh, we've got a big allocation, uh, I'm not really sure I, in, in reading about it, you know, sometimes I'll hear about something very specific about what's in, in the infrastructure bill. And then it seems more general. And certainly there's a process going on where states are trying to figure out how to spend it. What's the best description of how this money is actually going to get into the hands of the people who are going to spend on these projects?
1: Sure. Well, um, the, there's a couple different ways that, that federal dollars flow to states. Uh, The first is and the largest is through the what's called the formula program and the bill increased formula spending by between 25 and 30 percent who you talk to. And so that that money comes to states. They allocate it onto road and bridge projects. Um, And now they're going to have 25, 30 percent more, depending on which state you talk to and how they're doing the math. But the bill also invited some new programs. Uh, There's several grant programs where states and others will compete for money. At the national level so submit a, a grant application to the to the usdot united states department of transportation and uh and then projects will be selected on on a whole host of criteria depending on the on the, the the grant type or the program type so really a couple different ways one just more money in the ways we've been doing it but also new money in new programs that are usually competitive in nature
0: and how short I'm going to say how short term, because some of these projects are going to be long term. But I'll give you an example. I live in in New York, and I know one of the more ambitious projects that's been discussed is putting a cover over the Cross Bronx Expressway. The Cross Bronx Expressway is, for the most part, sunken uh, through a lot of neighborhoods. There's issues about, well, should it ever have been built the way it was? And the idea here is you kind of cap it. It's not literally a tunnel, but kind of a kind of a tunnel, and, um, you know, blocks Pollution and makes for a better community. Whatever we won't, I won't go into that. But like this, just seems enormously ambitious. And I'm just wondering if the time frame on a really ambitious project like that can fit in the time frame of this bill.
1: Yeah, I, well, I think in some cases yes. And I don't, you know, I don't know the specifics about that project, but there are projects say here in Nebraska that we've been wanting to build for years, decades, even. And so in some cases, we've we've made progress in planning and designing those. And now with a little extra money, we can maybe accelerate that construction in other cases uh you know you may end up uh planning some new projects and the life of the bill is 5 years that that is generally um not long enough to do something big like you describe if you if that's just a sort of idea in somebody's head by the time you get through all of the engineering and the the regulatory pieces you're going to have a hard time getting that done in 5 years so most of the projects that you'll see will have been on the shelf in some way whether through a planning study or or uh, some engineering work has already been done, I would expect that in most cases that will be the, the kind of projects you'll see. So you won't hear brand new things coming out because of the timeline. Just It's just too long to get these things done.
0: Right. And how many shovel-ready projects are truly shovel-ready or how many of them are plants sitting on a shelf?
1: Uh, fewer than you would like, I'm sure. that Part of that is just because of the regulatory process to use federal dollars. You kind of have to know that you have the money before you can check all the boxes. So now that we have a little bit more money, you got to start checking those boxes. So there's fewer projects that you'll see that are, you know, truly shovel ready unless they were um already sort of planned and now they're just accelerated a little bit a year or two. And and um you know, that that's okay. That I think what you're trying to do is two things. You're trying to get money spent uh as quickly as possible. We're in a time where we could use the infrastructure investment, creates jobs, those kinds of things. But you're also trying to make the investments that are Long-term in nature that support economic growth long-term, and so you know having to take a step back, finish the planning process and the engineering, and and build it say in three, four, five, six years that's okay. That you know that that isn't exactly shovel ready, but it's in our world that's not too far off.
0: Right, as opposed to like uh, again back to my New York residents, uh, the New York the East Side Access Project, the Long Island Railroad is going to finish next year. And I believe the first shovels on it turned dirt in 2003. So you know that's that's the contrast. Okay. Well, that's longer than
1: anyone would would have uh, hoped. I'm I'm certain of it. And having yeah. some some federal or some financial certainty helps us to plan and and deliver the construction faster too. Right.
0: So let's pretend that I'm your client. I'm with the uh, such and such state department of transportation, and you sit me down to say, okay, here's the best way for you to approach this. What are some of the key points you think you'd tell me?
1: Well, a couple of things. I, th- I think first of all I would want to know what kind of um, prioritization process you already have. And most states have a pretty robust prioritization process for their preservation kinds of projects. You're you know, you're you're uh, you're tearing out the old road and putting the new asphalt down so that it's smooth again and not filled with potholes. You know, replacing or repairing a bridge. Most states are very good at understanding how to do those investments, how to make those kinds of projects work in a very cost effective way so that, you know, you're you're maintaining your system in good condition, sort of like you would do with your house. You know, you you know, at some point you got to replace the roof with your car. you got to do the oil changes, those kinds of things. States are usually pretty good at those kinds of things where I think we try to help and, and where our clients often are asking for help is how do we take one more step and look at our portfolio of all projects And figure out how do we make the biggest bang for our buck across all categories forget you know whether it's a bridge project or a pavement project or an expansion project where we're adding lanes or even a transit project and understand the benefits of all of the different kinds of projects across all the kinds of things we're trying to do we're trying to improve safety we're trying to move traffic better we're trying to take care of our system make sure it's in good condition so how do we pick the best projects across that portfolio and we we advise clients on how to do that. Um, you know, we help we help with some modeling tools and and some decision matrix kinds of discussions to figure out what's important to you, what's important to your constituents, and how do we make sure that we give you the best set of projects to, to deliver that. And and a lot of states are making a lot of great progress in these decisions so that they're 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 trying to make the very best use of the limited resources that they have. And you know, with some of the, the data and the computing powder that we have these days. Um, states are really up in their game in terms of being able to make great decisions.
0: Well that's good to hear. Now, the first thing people think of is like, oh, let's fix the roads. There's too many potholes, too many cracks sacks kind of thing. But I mean to spend this much money, you gotta do a lot more than just repave things. For the projects that you've seen out there, or just your your general view of what are the biggest projects that need to get done, can you set your like
1: can you set the Kyle priority list? Yeah, well I think uh, you know, when it comes to freight, I think the the freight bottlenecks that we have in our country are something we have to try to address. And, and these have impacts not just in the communities where they're happening, but you know to freight industry at large, to us that commute uh, uh, long distances. And so I would be trying to focus largely on those kinds of, of solutions. Where can we move throughput better and, and improve supply chains and imp- improve mobility for our freight industry and the connections between rail and truck? And, uh, you know, intermodal facility, those kinds of of investments, I think, are are one place I would be looking. Um, I think safety has got to be top of mind. You know, we've seen more fatalities these last few years. We were on a long decline for about a decade plus in this country, and we've actually seen it level off and even uh, spike a little bit. And so, you know, anything we can do on the infrastructure side to improve safety is something that I I think is of, of most importance as well.
0: What are some of the projects that excite you when you when you talk to states and they say, "Well we want to do this, we want to do that, and you know obviously the pie and the sky stuff is exciting, but maybe not realistic, but besides fixing existing roads, that kind of thing, what have you heard out there that you thought that is a really good project and you're you're very glad it's likely to be funded under this under this new uh, legislation
1: well i I think for me it's those freight kinds of bottleneck projects that I talk about. And, and um, you know, I don't have uh, off the top of my head, my fi- top five in the country or anything like that. I'm, I'm usually working at a little bit more of a programmatic level, trying to help states think about how to spend their resources. But anything we can do to improve safety and get the freight moving across our country faster, I think is is where we need to focus.
0: And are you concerned, you, you, you seem to be very positive, of course you came out of state government, you seem to be very positive and optimistic that the states have good projects, that they've got good people to recommend things. Are you a little concerned that the political process might take over and you start to get vanity projects that are, you know, they're nice, but they're not really key to revitalizing infrastructure?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, politics is a double-edged sword. On one hand, you, uh, anytime we're making these kinds of decisions, politics are gonna be involved. And that can be a very good thing because those the folks who are helping to make the decision about how much money do we spend, are representing the people of their districts, their constituencies. And so by having their input into the process, is that's a good thing. I think if it gets into, uh, you know, we have to give my pet project in above any and all other projects, you know, that's where we start to run into trouble. But I think most states, most of Congress works very well with their state DOTs, their cities, their counties to talk through the priorities that are important on the ground in those communities. And so I don't I don't see that as a big challenge as long as that partnership is strong between those who are making the decisions about where the money goes on the ground and uh, and those who are making those tough votes uh, in state legislatures and in, and in Congress.
0: What um, what are some of the uh, oh, I, I'm sorry, I stumbled. I'll have to make a note that I stumbled in about 12 minutes. OK, let me ask the question again. then. Um, what are some of the states that you have any particular affinity for where you've dealt with them and you think like these are states that have a really good program, a really good organization. You know, can, can you single out kind of your, your top three list that, that gets your, that gets your recognition?
1: Sure. I, I think um, we it's we have, of course, you know? we've supported the Texas DOT quite a bit in their planning process. They have some very robust initiatives to try to understand how to best allocate their resources. So, Um, You know, Texas is one of the larger states, of course, and has a lot of challenges in terms of of infrastructure needs and and so many people that live there. So, I I have to give hats off to Texas and and some of the work they're doing. Um, Let's see, trying to think. I'm I'm trying not to pick out my favorite clients, but just those that I think are doing the very best. Um, That's a good question, John.
0: Well, we can. You can if, if, if anyone comes to you later. So yeah. Let's talk about rebuilding the roads. You know, the first thing people think of is repaving, but rebuilding a road consists of far more than that. So, if you find a road, if you find a road or a highway, you say, "Oh, that, that needs a lot of work." Tell me why it needs a lot of work besides just more asphalt.
1: Sure. Well, uh, you know, many of our interstates were built fifty, sixty, seventy years ago. As an example, and so uh, at some point, the even if the surface is uh, is smooth underneath, it's starting to crumble. And so, you know, we. Uh, at some point you have to tear it open and and start from the ground up. And that, that life cycle is starting to come true for a lot of state highways uh, and, and, and interstates across our country. So it's a challenge for state DOTs. Um, You know, some of these road roads don't, you know, we think of our interstates, they're very busy, but in some places like in Nebraska, we have roads that don't carry a lot of traffic. And so, but they're very critical to the agricultural community and the, rural constituencies and so being able to keep those facilities uh, working is really really important yet the costs of completely rebuilding the road are are prohibitive and so a lot of times in those situations we're coming up with ways to try to come up with uh, cost-effective treatments to you know smooth it out uh, get the water off the road uh, and get some more life out of the out of the highway before we have to rebuild it so you know those are the, some of the things that you know i would just say too in in addition to those kinds of of analysis when we're talking about rebuilding a road you know a lot of the projects that you'll see will add improvements to the road so there are safety improvements or or adding a lane here or adding an interchange there and those kinds of decisions these days most state dot's most cities they're not making them in a vacuum they're not just running models they're having those conversations in their communities and i think that's an important part of of government these days and that transparency and that input that you can get from the community, the business leaders, the the residents, and a lot of uh, government entities have really doubled down on trying to get that input. And that's a really good thing because, you know, it wasn't too long ago that the state DOT often just made the decisions on what to do based on their own interests, their own uh, understanding of what was most important. And I think now you're seeing more and more states are making these decisions, not only with the engineering in mind, the cost effectiveness piece in mind, but also, you know, what's important to a community, what's important to a constituency. And so that input is an important part of the process that hasn't always been the case.
0: You know, everybody's celebrating this and I understand that, but part of it seems, part of me strikes me, this is just not a good way to run a railroad. To let infrastructure deteriorate over time, and then have a great big party, at, you know, well over a billion dollars to fix it. I was gonna, I'm not gonna say all at once, but I think everybody would agree that a steadier funding source and a steadier approach to infrastructure is far preferred. Uh, I'm assuming you're not going to disagree with me. Given that, how do we get to that spot?
1: Well, I think you know the the states have been increasing their investments in infrastructure for a long time. Most states have. Have a gas tax, and and have that that motor fuel tax has been something that you've perhaps seen increased in your state or in states that you that you travel through. Um, that's not the case across the country, but in most states they have they have been making these steady investments. Uh, the federal government has had fewer uh, successes like that. I think the last gas tax increase was in the nineties, and since then there have been increases, but they've been done with with without that dedicated funding source which without the funding source, that's why it can be hard for Congress to get across the line on these kinds of things at times. And so, um, you know, whether you th- you think that the fuel tax is a good way to fund transportation or not, um, t- traditionally, that's how it's been done. I think one of the challenges that we face in our country in the future is, you know, the cars are getting more fuel efficient. Uh, we're seeing more and more electric cars. It used to be a novelty to see a Tesla driving down the street. And now you, you see one every day, maybe, maybe multiple and so we know that those those vehicles don't use motor fuel, so they don't pay any uh, any tax to, to fix the infrastructure. And so we got to figure out something else long term. And, and there's a lot of folks who are working hard on that. I think um, you know it's, it's not something any one city or any one state can can solve on their own. Although there are pilots happening all across the country. Utah's got one. Oregon has the longest running one of trying to look at other models, uh, whether it's electric vehicle fees or charging fees, or you're seeing some some mileage-based uh, user fees where where we're, we're we're trying to charge for use of the system rather than how much fuel you use, so how far you went or when you went. And uh, those are some interesting things, lots and lots of things to work through on that. But I think to, to your point, in order to get to a, a place where we have that sort of steady understanding of where those infrastructure investments are going to be made, we're going to have to look at how we fund it.
0: Uh final question. Been a great discussion, but there's another part of this mix that needs to be thought of and taken care of, and that's finding enough workers to do this. And when I see some of these ambitious projects, uh, and I know at least where I am, there's already a lot of road projects going on. Are there going to be enough blue collar workers out there to get this stuff done?
1: Well, that's a question. I, you know, I, I think it's a challenge not just for you know this industry, but for lots of industries. And so, um, and it's not only the worker challenge but also the supply chain challenge. You know, these, these infrastructure investments take resources and the supply chain, as you know, and as many of your listeners know, is fairly stretched at the moment. So, you know, I think those are things that, that people like, that are working in state DOTs are, are watching and they're trying to have conversations with the partners, the folks who, the contractors who they hire to build these facilities, you know, so they can understand what the impacts are, what's doable. And how do we get strategic about trying to allocate these resources? So it, it is something to watch. It's something that I, I just had a phone call with uh, one of our clients this morning, and it's something they're they're trying to sort through to figure out what is what is the you know what is we've seen some inflation lately. So what are the what are these cost increases coming from? Are they because of tr- traditional inflation like we're seeing across the economic sectors, or is it tailored to a specific kind of material we're using, or is it worker? challenges and, and digging into those numbers and helping our clients figure out, okay, how, you know, what do we need to be concerned about? Where do we need to partner? How can we get smarter about how to be prepared for these things? Um, you know, these are these are real challenges. And, and you know, they're good challenges because, like I said, it's a good time to be in transportation and in infrastructure. But, um, you know, any like any good opportunity, there's always some hurdles you got to jump over first.
0: All right. We want to thank Kyle Schneeweiss. He is with the firm of High- I'm going to go, I'm blowing it again. We want to thank Kyle Schneeweiss. He's with High Street Consulting Group. He's been our guest today here on Drilling Deep, talking about the infrastructure bill and how, I guess you call it the lofty goals of the bill and the dollars turn into real projects. Is that how we would sum up what we just talked about, Kyle?
1: I think so, John. I appreciate you having me on. And I uh, just want to give a shout out to, you know, all those in the freight world who are focused on safety on the roadways. You know, it's such an important part of, of their business, I know, but also as a former DOT leader, You know, it's something we focus on every single day. And and I really want to thank everybody for, you know, their focus on that when they're out there on the
0: roads. Well, thanks, Kyle. Thank you for joining us here on Drilling Deep. Drilling Deep is part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts. From Freightways, you can find us on all of the major podcast platforms. I'm your host, John Kingston, and please join us again.